Hi, and welcome back to the top 10 things you can do to prevent child sexual abuse. My name is Megan, and today I'm talking about tip number four, why kids don't tell. To fully understand this, you really should listen to tip number three, and that is talking about the grooming process. I ended that episode talking about a man at a barbecue that had molested his friend's daughter, And I think that that story, just like any story of grooming, really can help fully understand why kids keep the secrecy around sexual abuse, how that confusion really silences them. And I think that story is also important in just helping people understand how it's not about the sexual gratification. In that story, he spent possibly just a matter of seconds rubbing this little girl's vagina. And the question is, what kind of gratification could he have really gotten from that in that moment? Because he didn't do anything more to her involving his sexual parts. That's not to say that it's not at all disturbing or traumatic. She was certainly very traumatized. And years later, after 10 years of secrecy, finally was able to get the secret out and come and talk about it in therapy. But really, I think that it's just so useful to understand the nature of their actions. And it's not about any kind of sexual gratification, at least in that moment, because what it's really about is the power and control, the ability to silence her to silence her parents if they do find out about it, to get a community of people to not ever want to believe that he could do something like that. That's really where the power is. It's kind of, I always get this visual of like a puppeteer and he's got everybody on the strings and he is just watching and manipulating to make sure that he is able to get her to maintain the silence. So, Really understanding why kids don't tell about sexual abuse is is what you need to, um, you really need to grasp that whole grooming process. So go back and listen to that episode if you did not. So tip number four is really why kids don't tell and understanding that a little bit more. Um, now I think we really want to just visit some of the statistics because it's quite amazing how how infrequently kids do tell about sexual abuse. The thing that, that I, there's a statistic that I used to have a very hard time believing, but the more I've done this work, I, I absolutely do believe it. But that is that when thousands of adults are asked, were you ever sexually abused as a child? The ones that respond, yes, that they were, it's followed up asking them if they ever told anyone as a child. And two thirds of the time, the answer is no, they did not tell as a child. 60 to 70% is another statistic that I've seen that they have not told anyone as a child and did not make this disclosure until they were an adult. So one third of the time, sexual abuse victims are able to tell when they're still children. And I just, I used to think that was so ridiculous until I've just, (laughs) week after week, I have parents in my office or people that attend my classes that, that disclose to me very often for the first time. I always ask, who have you told about this before? 
And I'm always so honored when they tell me that I'm the first person that they've told. But it's really amazing how many people have been carrying this secrecy for years. And as a trauma therapist, I just, I cannot emphasize enough that that is truly where the trauma is at. The trauma is in the secrecy. So when I talk about that little girl at the barbecue, that this happened when she was five, and when she comes into my office as a 15, 16-year-old girl disclosing for the first time, I am not doing therapy on the incident that happened, those five seconds, those five minutes that happened when she was five. Of course, we're discussing that, but so much more of her trauma is about the 10 years of silence that follow and her inability to tell and the shame and the silence that surrounds that. That is where the trauma is at. And we, we find that with, you know, a lot of the research out there. I, I'm really fascinated, not so much by trauma, but by resiliency. And the good news is that a lot of children that experience incredibly traumatic experience, events are so completely resilient and they're able to bounce back and recover from those instances and there is just a lot of research that that focuses in on of course big traumas that we hear about whether it's hurricanes or tornadoes or uh, terrorist attacks or school shootings and and they're they follow up with these kids and of course they have a lot of physical injuries but they also want to know about the mental health repercussions of these events and what's so remarkable is that very often these kids have extremely low rates of post-traumatic stress compared to people that have what are called the adverse childhood experiences type traumas. ACEs is just this enormous amount of research that is so fascinating if you want to Google that, but it is just, it, it identifies essentially the secrecy traumas, the, the things that happen to a child that they cannot speak of. And that is the secrecy is it just it just completely magnifies the experience. And so I, I think of situations, well, first of all, I'd like to say that when you're at this crossroads after a traumatic experience and you're looking down the road of being traumatized or resilient, what the research tells us is that there's one thing more than anything else that really sets you up for which road to go down. And that is a support system. If you are able to get support for this traumatic experience, you will be much more likely to recover. So considering that, think of traumas such as the Boston Marathon bombing, where children were exposed to horrific injuries, either to themselves or to loved ones, even death sometimes. And think of those kids that wake up in a hospital bed that are surrounded by loved ones, moving on to a rehabilitation center, Maybe when they go back to school, they have cards or the hallways are decorated. They might have a community fundraiser. But one thing I know for sure that they got was a standing ovation at Fenway Park, Boston Strong. They were able to get that when they threw out the first pitch, and I saw that on television. I just cannot even imagine that level of support for the kids that I work with at the Children's Advocacy Center when kids come through. The River Bridge, they have been either exposed to sexual abuse or domestic violence or physical abuse, these traumas that they cannot speak of. 
And so they're unable, they cut themselves off from the one thing that they need the most, support. And so in keeping the secrecy and keeping the silence, they are not able to get the support that they need to fully recover from this instance. So really, when we're talking about child sexual abuse prevention, I really want you to think of it as trauma prevention, because what I want to create is a community of kids that feel safe telling immediately. And sexual abuse is not something anyone wants to have happen to their child. But there are so many things that nobody wants to have happen to their child. I mean, I live here and in an amazing location in western Colorado and my kids and everybody else's are always out mountain biking and skiing and rafting and just constantly exposed to potential dangers. But if something happens to them, that or car accident or sudden illness or witnessing something horrific, chances are they're going to be able to talk about it and process it immediately afterward. And that will significantly reduce their rates of post-traumatic stress from coming on. And if it's a trauma that a kid feels like they cannot speak of it, they cannot tell, they are so much more likely to be traumatized. So this is really about sexual abuse trauma prevention. Because if you can have a child that comes and tells you right away, I can tell you that they will recover from this. The trauma truly lies in the secrecy. And this sexual abuse is absolutely recoverable. I don't believe that it it will destroy a person unless the person lives in that silence and follows the offender's rule of silence and continues to have that person that is offended on them have power and control over them by keeping their secret. So it is really, really important that kids realize that that secrets are unsafe and that they need to tell about things that happen. So um, a little bit more of the research is just that very few children, um, sometimes statistics as low as 10% disclose while the abuse is still actually happening. 43% initially deny allegations of abuse when asked directly, and that might be hard for people to understand, but think back to the story I told in episode three about little Billy, and if his mother had come to him and just said, you know what, I'm just kind of wondering if anybody has ever touched your private parts when you didn't want them to. Imagine, he has, he has decided that he is part of the secrecy. He is locked into that secret. And so the idea that he would just be like, oh my gosh, thank you so much for finally asking me. I mean, it's important to ask. It will plant the seed. But he would have been so much better off if his mother had originally or earlier said, you know, nobody ever has the right to look at or touch your private parts. And if anybody ever tries to do anything to your penis or to make you do something to their private parts, honey, I want you to know they're breaking a rule. And I really want you to tell me about it. So uh, it's said that 75% of kids don't tell within the first year of abuse. And, and this is so often the case of what I see come through the river bridge, at least in my experience, is that generally I'm working with a, a fairly long period of secrecy. So how can we talk to our kids about this? I think that, that one of the most important things that I've told my kids is just secrets are not safe. And I think that if you have little kids, you know that most of them love secrets. 
and so I'm not here to ruin everything for them and, <laughs> and ruin Christmas and everything else, but uh, I want you to think that most of the time, if you're talking about something being a secret, you're probably talking about something being a surprise, and so I just suggest using that language instead. Surprises feel great. There is an end date. There is a point in time where the surprise is going to be known by everyone. It's happy. It's exciting. It's a celebration. Secrets imply that you should never ever tell and that maybe people shouldn't ever know. And secrets often give you an uh-oh feeling, that kind of no good, scary feeling of something that maybe something is wrong. So um, I think it's also important to talk to kids about privacy because yeah, some things like crushes when they're a little bit older are going to be private, or maybe it's a situation that your kids go to school with their cousins and their aunt and uncle are getting a divorce, and they don't want everyone to know yet. And so you can talk about, you know what, your Aunt Susie and Uncle Bill are getting a divorce, and I want you to to be able to come and talk to me about it, or you can talk to Grandma about it. But really, I don't want you talking to other kids at school because your cousins aren't ready for other kids to know. So identifying people that they can go to when things are private, but you don't need to call that a secret um, because secrets just are, are not safe. And, and most kids are able to, to understand this, and, and they also need to understand that threats and bribes are just not okay. But the main thing about secrecy is, is that they, it gives you a bad feeling. I think of an example from my own life. My, my daughter at one point was just something was bothering her, and we went several days of me kind of just being aware that uh, something might be going on with her and and just, you know, it's, it's really being in tune with your kids and, and checking in. And so one night I lied down with her, and I was like, hey, babe, is everything okay? What's going on? It seems like something's bothering you. And she just burst into tears. Oh, Mom, I have a secret I'm so scared to tell. And I'm like, oh, God, here it is. Oh. And really, all it was is that she had lost her iPod. I shouldn't say all it was. It was a very stupidly expensive device, and it was an aggravation. But really, I, I think that this is, this is the key moment in parenting, that you are able to practice what you preach. <laughs> And if you want to teach your kids that they can come to you with anything, you've got to take advantage of that opportunity and not have the response of, you what? What do you mean you lost that iPod? I told you not to leave the house with it. Did you take it someplace? It's so easy to go there when you're frustrated and tired and aggravated and afraid that they've lost this expensive thing. But the reality is, is that this is your opportunity to just say, oh, babe. I am so sorry that you felt like you had to keep that a secret. That must have been so upsetting to not be able to talk about. Oh, I know. It just, it was so, I was so scared I was going to get in trouble. And oh, baby, you can always tell me anything. You know that. That secrets aren't safe. It's just so much more important to get it out. And to use opportunities when they arise to really instill in your children that they can come to you and they don't need to be afraid to tell you anything. So that is just a, a very important message here of, of secrets are not safe. So let's really think about why kids don't tell because there are just a multitude of reasons, but it's really important to understand them. Um, 
I think the first one really to go over is something called the fear response, the startle response. And this is when the sympathetic nervous system kicks into the parasympathetic nervous system. And, oh, I just said that backwards. But anyway, it, it is the child um, is terrified and in a state of stress. And instead of being able to fight or flight, they're going to freeze. This is that feeling that I've talked about, that uh-oh feeling that happens, zero to 100, and you feel like you are at 100. The heart is thumping, the muscles are tense. And so often, kids are not in a position, especially when they've been taught to respect authority and not question adults and not talk back and all of these messages, that they do not feel that they can fight, they do not feel like they can run away. And so, so often, because the offender is bigger and more powerful and more intimidating, or they have a close relationship with them, and they're overwhelmed or just so confused, they cannot move, they freeze. And when they freeze and they do not say no because the scream is stuck in their throat and they just feel like their tongue is loose, I hear so many things from kids in therapy explaining why they weren't able to stop it, um, then they feel later that they did something wrong. Because one of the most common things that parents say to their kids for sexual abuse prevention is, don't let anyone touch you there. And so if a child, such as the one on the couch, was touched by her dad's good friend, what did she do? She let him touch her there. And now she's going to be in trouble if that's the only thing she's heard. So she, like many kids, frees and they don't fight back, and they don't say no. And then sometimes the perpetrator then even uses that to assign blame to the child. Well, I didn't know you wanted me to stop. I didn't know because you didn't do anything. You didn't say no. And then they tell the parents that, oh gosh, or they tell the kid that the parents are going to be angry, and they really confuse the child about what's right and wrong. Sometimes offenders threaten the child. Sometimes they threaten the family, but it's really not necessary. Those threats are more implicit that, oh, well, we'll have to, maybe we'll have to move or we'll have to, um, you know, just we're going to lose contact with this person or lose contact with certain family members. Um, so very often there's those kind of fears. Um, the threat is just looming. Um very often children hope that the problem is going to stop all on its own and that they can just take care of it and avoid the person. And sometimes they can, but that secrecy part of the trauma still is something that is upsetting to them. So um, they're just, and, and then a lot of times they can't stop it and the, the perpetrator is able to abuse them a second time and then they feel overwhelmed because they are going to be in more trouble because they didn't tell the first time. So there's a lot of shame, there's a lot of self-blame, just embarrassment. This is a very awkward thing to talk about, and they're so embarrassed very often. And in particular, if the abuse felt good. And this is the dirty secret of sexual abuse, even though offenders like to talk about it on their perverted websites, and they like to convince themselves sometimes that they're doing a good thing for these kids that they are making their bodies feel good, that they're introducing them to sexual feelings. It is just a reality that 
we are all born into this world with the capacity to feel sexual pleasure. And that is just something that that is a part of our bodily functions. And we can't stop that necessarily anymore than we can stop a cut from bleeding just by having mind control thinking, oh, stop bleeding. Try that the next time you have a nosebleed or a mosquito bite and just telling yourself to stop itching. If I eat a ginormous cheesecake and I tell my stomach not to digest it, that would be a fabulous trick. But we just cannot control our bodily functions like that. And so we are designed to experience sexual pleasure. That is something that has allowed humanity to continue for thousands and thousands of years is because we have those primal urges. And if people looked at each other, it's like, oh, God, I'm not doing that. We would have died out as a species a long time ago. So it is just something that that we are meant to experience that pleasure. And very often offenders are able to use that and make a child experience pleasure, especially if it's a little boy and he has an erection as a result of the abuse. This can be so shameful and so overwhelming. And it is just something that um, that needs to, to be understood. So um, a lot of kids are afraid that people are not going to believe them. And this happens. Unfortunately, I see it happen a lot. I think very often people make this assumption that kids just make this stuff up. Um, the statistics do not at all support that. Uh, most cases that children have been known to fabricate, well, it's not even children fabricating sexual abuse. It's usually the cases that are proven to be fabricated at some point are cases usually of a custody dispute, and it's actually one parent making allegations about the other, but it's not necessarily the child confirming that disclosure in any kind of forensic interview. This is why children's advocacy centers and doing the right interviews, forensic interviews, is so important because it really, really helps to get the facts out from people, from professionals that are only trained to talk to children about their sexual abuse experiences. Law enforcement um, can can do these interviews and still do in some places, but I just, I feel for, for being a law enforcement officer, they have so much training. They have to be able to learn how to shoot weapons and identify drugs and deal with mental health issues and homeless people. They have to have high-speed car chases and most importantly, they have to be able to do a really solid interview of a perpetrator to try to get them to confess. So all of that training for them to also additionally have to be trained in interviewing a four-year-old that is a potential sexual abuse victim is just a lot to put on one person's plate. And Children's Advocacy Centers acknowledge that that this is just such a really critical issue that we need to have professionals that this is solely their job to talk to kids about sexual abuse so we can get those quality interviews and make sure that no one is ever falsely accused. So the the rare cases that there are fabricated um, allegations of sexual abuse, um, they they're usually fall apart pretty quickly in a forensic interview once the child comes in and and has to go through all of the details of the story. That is a very, very hard thing to stick with. I just go back to those statistics of how, how few people tell when they are real victims. Remember, it's only one third of victims tell when they're still children. 
And so if that's the case, that real victims can't even tell because of all of these reasons, all of the shame, the embarrassment, the stigma, the fear, if you had to make up something about a person, why would you use that one thing that even real victims can't even talk about? So it's just, it, it really blows my mind when people assume that there are so many fabricated stories of sexual abuse out there. It's just very unlikely. I think if a kid wants to make up something about a person, they can say, you gave me pot or tried to give me cocaine or any number of things, rather than having to go through the embarrassment of trying to give details of sexual acts at a forensic interview. So, um, so anyway, there's uh, additionally children are unable to tell because they have love and loyalty for the perpetrator. Remember little Billy and how much he cared about his uncle um, and a fear of, of people would not believe him. And in that case, the grandparents did not believe him, which goes to another reason kids don't tell is fear of family disruption. And so often this happens is I see grandparents align with the offender or um, just families split apart. Kids can't see their cousins anymore. Siblings are broken apart. It's just, it's really a lot of disruption in these families. And it is so sad. So often I just am watching the dust settle thinking this is exactly why it took this child so long to tell. Um, a lot of times kids don't have the language skills to tell, especially if they're really young. Um, they don't have the ability to communicate. That's why when we're talking in tip number five, it's really important to teach your children at a very early age to talk about their, their private parts, um, being able to identify that they're the boss of their body and identify what to call their private parts, that they are a penis and vagina, et cetera, giving them the language. Um, so young children may not even understand the experience was abusive, and that's why it's important to tell them early on that no one has the right to touch them on their private parts. Uh, keeping secrets is part of the family pattern very often. And so this is what I see in a lot of cases of like divorce, um, when mom is saying, don't tell dad about my new boat, don't tell mom about my new girlfriend, don't tell dad about my trip to Vegas. Don't tell mom about my new car. These kids go back and forth and they have so many secrets to keep. And I've seen in offender interviews that they actually look for kids that have to keep a lot of secrets like that. And also if there's like substance abuse in the family, um, domestic violence in the family, those are definitely some of the risk factors that we will be getting to in a later tip. Um, but I think really most of what I hear from kids when I ask them, why was it so hard to tell is they didn't want to make their mom cry or they didn't want to make their dad so mad that he would have to go and kill somebody. This is what they fear the most is just really, really upsetting their parents. And so there are just so many reasons why kids don't tell that physical force is really rarely necessary to get a child to engage in sexual activity. I think a lot of times people assume that it's this forceful, violent act, but really it's, it's not. Kids are trusting and dependent and simply want approval and love and to make us happy. And so they really like to please adults. And that is just something that um, 
offenders are able to prey upon and take advantage of. So uh, many, many children are afraid that they did something to cause the abuse. And one of the main reasons why kids don't tell, I think, also is that they fear that nobody's going to believe them um, and that they're going to get blamed. So those are, are two of the primary reasons. And, and when we think about victim blaming, we can probably come up with a lot of situations where the victim is identified um, as being at fault. And so victim blaming is, is a really big part of why kids do not tell about sexual abuse. And so um, when we're thinking about all of the different reasons why kids are blamed, there are so many that, that we I hear just in our victim blaming culture, such as if we're talking about a lot of adolescents now at this point, but if they were drunk, uh, maybe they propositioned a legally older adult, uh, maybe they are already sexually active and have a history, maybe they are dressed inappropriately, and maybe they're just a passive participant and there was no physical force. And so it's kind of that, well, why did you let him touch you there attitude? So I, I talk a lot about victim blaming. I think it is one of the primary reasons why kids don't tell, why they keep the silence, is that they are really afraid of being blamed. And so what I use to be able to help people to understand victim blaming is something I call the continuum of decency. And so this is, it's hard to do in a podcast that you don't have a visual. So maybe at some point I'll have slides that go with this and put it up on YouTube or something like that. But um, I, I just, just try to visualize um, a line that's a continuum. And, and right in the middle of that line is being decent. And this is just being a decent human being, which is basically being the bare minimum of good. And then a step above decent is being polite. And a step below is being rude, right? And so I, I draw this continuum out and I'll give a, a silly example. Like, for example, uh, somebody's walking into a building. And so the decent thing to do is just kind of shove the door for the person walking behind you. If you take a moment and hold the door, that would be really polite. And if you actually even went and opened the door for a person and waited for a minute, that would be really respectful. Uh, maybe you pay them a nice compliment and you could say that that was really kind. Or if you go the extra step and make sure, do you know where you're going? Can I help you find any place? Or can I help you carry something that would be really caring or compassionate? And ultimately, the highest point on this continuum of decency is being a loving person. And on the flip side, everything that I just named has an opposite. So the opposite of being polite is rude. You know, if you don't give that little push to the door and it just slams in a person's face, you could consider that to be rude. And then the step below that is being disrespectful is the opposite of respectful. So that's the door slams in somebody's face and here you are at a high school and all these kids start laughing and making fun of the kid. Uh, maybe they push that a little further and it's beyond disrespectful. It's actually really mean. So that's the opposite of of kind and just making fun of this kid and, and maybe then even just 
not only laughing at him and making big jokes, but just once he gets through the door, pushing him, tripping him. That would be really abusive to have any kind of physical contact. And, and then the most, the, the very bottom of this continuum is being violent. And so that would be really, you know, beating somebody up. And so this is the continuum. And, and so what I want to point out is that we are always on this continuum. At every moment of every day, we are someplace on this continuum of decency. We're never not on it. And I just like to think of what a wonderful world it would be if nobody ever went below decent. But that's exactly what's happened when a person has been sexually abused. So when we're thinking about our victim-blaming culture and we're setting up these scenarios, what I think is really important to think about is not just the victim. In fact, they're kind of irrelevant in the situation. What makes sexual abuse happen is the other person involved that would be in the role of the abuser. So if we take a situation that we have somebody that has all of those things that people get blamed for, right? She was dressed very promiscuously at a party. She got very drunk. She was flirting with a bunch of guys because she's had sex with a lot of them before. And so this is just a really, really troubled kid at this party. And just imagine that she's very wasted and she stumbles into the bathroom to throw up and in fact misses and throws up all over her clothes and she's barely even aware of the fact that she takes her clothes off and she passes out naked on a bed. So now we have a drunk, naked, passed out girl on the bed. And so clearly she has done things wrong. I certainly don't want to confuse risk reduction with prevention. Risk reduction is this girl would have been a lot less risk at risk of having something happen to her if she had just stayed at home and read a book that night. Of course, she would be less likely to be a victim of sexual assault if that was the case. But the only way this incident would be prevented depends on who walks into that room. So, of course, I do not want my daughters behaving this way. Of course, we have to recognize that she has done something wrong. But let's just take a moment to consider, we'll focus on her like people want to when we're victim blaming, what victims like this have done wrong, okay? So I'll just say that her behavior up until this point, she, as far as I know, I think if we say this is a 16-year-old girl, has violated at least two laws. She's got a minor in possession ticket for drinking, and she is also has a charge potentially for public nudity. So if a police officer is the one that walks in the room, that's what she'll get charged with. And she'll go to court and she'll be faced with one of the four penalties. I seriously doubt that she would get the most serious one, which is the death penalty. But we only have four real punishments in our society. And those would be fines, community service, jail, and the death penalty. And so those are basically the four things that are going to happen to a person that break a rule. So here's this girl. She's broken a couple rules. The officer walked in the room, found her like that, gave her a ticket, made sure she got home safe, and now she has to go face the judge. And she's most likely going to get what she deserves, which is a fine in community service. 
I think the most important thing we have to think of in victim blaming is we have not yet decided as a society, and hopefully never will, that what she deserves is a sex assault. Imagine a court of law in which the judge sentences her to a sexual assault in the back room. That does not happen. So what we are assuming with victim blaming is that somehow we have decided as a society that sex assault is a punishment. It is absolutely not a punishment. It is actually a crime. Because when we go back and we think of that room and we think of the girl passed out naked on the bed, okay, now we're going to stop focusing on her because really this is not anything about her. This is about the guy that walks in the room. What's going to happen when this guy walks in the room is going to depend on where he falls on that continuum of decency. What would a decent guy do? Just decent. The bare minimum of good. He's going to look at her and just walk right on by. Do nothing. Do no harm. Do no good. But what if he is rude? What will happen then? He'll probably go around and tell some other people at the party, right? But what if he's polite? Maybe throw a blanket on her? What would a respectful guy do? I think he would throw a blanket on her and close the door. And how about a kind person? Doing all of that and then going to find her friends? A really caring, compassionate person is going to help round up some clean clothes for her, maybe? And a truly loving person, which is what I want for my kids to behave, and hopefully how you want your kids to behave, is to be the person at the party that says, I'm not leaving until I know she's okay. And for us to suggest anything otherwise is condoning bad behavior. What I want is for us to raise our kids to be nothing below decent. And so at the very least, not to get involved but at the very most to make sure that this other person is safe. So, yes, we said a rude person would go around and spread rumors at the party. Disrespectful would probably be really just more malicious in their words. A mean person, well, that's somebody that might take a Sharpie and start drawing on her face. But abusive, that's where I see misdemeanors happening. This is when there's photos being taken or any kind of groping and touching behavior. But if there's somebody that thinks that she should be punished and that they have the right to punish her with a sex assault, that person is actually the one that's the criminal because that's not a punishment that we use. And they have no right to be the person enforcing the law. We have law enforcement to do that that they can come and write the citation, and we have judges to do the sentencing. But no other kid at that party is in any position, he's not even her parent, that should ground her, right? There, that person is in no position to give her a punishment, has no right to do that, and certainly does not have right the right to have sex with her, which it's not even sex. It's sexual assault, because really what's happening if a person does rape her is they're basically beating her up. Imagine how society would have a different response if instead of a person coming into the room and raping her, somebody came into the room and took his fist and punched her in the face, broke her jaw, broke her nose. Imagine the different response that would happen. Because if a person is sexually assaulted, essentially, 
He's just beating up her vagina with his penis. What difference does it make if it's a fist to the face? It's just body parts. And so we have to really think about what we are instilling in our kids. They're watching us when we're talking about victim blaming. They are seeing it when we're having these conversations on the news. With the whole Me Too movement, there's always another side when people are talking about how they think that sometimes women get themselves in these situations. They are forgetting the fact that we do not live in a society where sex assault is a punishment for any crime. So we have to really understand victim blaming if we're going to understand why kids don't tell. Because when we see what happens when people come out with their stories of sex abuse and what happened to them, and we see the response of people either saying that they're making it up or that they asked for it, we can understand why people stay silent, why it is so rare that people are going to tell. Because it's even when we have professionals and we have people that are very, very well respected, like Miss Marilyn Vandiver, she's a tremendous public speaker on the topic of sexual abuse. She tells her story of how when she was a young girl, her father sexually abused her throughout most of her childhood, but she later went on to be Miss America, and she kept that secret for a very long time until she came out publicly. But she tells this amazing story in her book and when she speaks about how when the story first came out, and she ran into a neighbor woman, and the neighbor said to her about how it was being said in the media that they weren't believing her. And she was furious. I mean, she could understand if they were saying other malicious things, but to not believe her, she just couldn't believe that. She's like, if they don't believe me, and I am in my 50s, and I am well-respected, how is anyone ever going to believe a child? And this is why so many kids don't tell, is because they really feel like they will not be believed, and so often they are not. So that is tip number four. That's a long one today. Thank you for hanging in there. And I will be presenting tip number five in the next episode, which will be teaching your children that they are the boss of their body. So thank you again for listening to this podcast. You have a great day.